1: Hi from Buffalo! Buffalo in western New York has invested significantly in our bike culture and cycling opportunities. You can roll along our lake and river fronts from our harbor to canal side downtown, continue through Front Park along the Niagara River, and maybe end up on Niagara Street where all sorts of food and drink distractions await. Whether you ride for fun, race, do a slow roll through one of our neighborhoods, with a hundred bicyclists, or join a club, there are a surplus of opportunities to get out and pedal around. I'm Peter Sabota. In this episode, our guest, Kimberly Washington, discusses Catholic Charity's St. Jude's Project in Washington, D.C., created to serve those with neurodegenerative disorders. Explaining its grounding in two evidence-based models, Ms. Washington describes how this intervention was formed to fill the gaps between services that support patients with diseases like Parkinson's, Huntington's, and Alzheimer's. Speaking to the many social work roles she and her colleagues fill, varying depending on the needs of each client, Ms. Washington identifies how the St. Jude's Project is able to provide wraparound services. In closing, she discusses the next steps for her and her team. Kimberly Washington, LICSW, LCSW, is Program Clinical Manager for the St. Jude's Project at Catholic Charities in Washington, D.C. Ms. Washington was interviewed in February of 2017 by our own Dr. Luann Back, Clinical Assistant Professor here at the UB School of Social Work and soon-to-be co-host of the In Social Work podcast.
2: Kimberly, I'm wondering if you could tell me about your current project. I'm so interested to hear a little bit more about the St. Jude's
3: project. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Bach. The story around the project starts well before the actual project, so I want to start with that. Some time ago, our funder, Mr. Jack Griffin, found that one of his family members was acting uncharacteristically, and he supported her through getting help and trying to find out Subsequently, she was misdiagnosed several times before they found out that she had Huntington's disease. So he is a man that has considerable resources, but still found that it was very difficult to find individuals who would help him with this particular illness and overall help him navigate what they should do next. He's a very industrious man, so he went to one of the local universities, found a neuropsychiatrist there brought her to Georgetown and created the HD, the Huntington's Disease Center at Georgetown. After some time, he found that there was still some patients being underserved in the community who needed an extension of what the hospitals were providing in terms of case management and so forth. So he came to Catholic Charities and asked us to start a program that would reach out into the community and serve those patients. That's when the St. Jude's Project was created. And it was created to serve patients in response to the lack of community support for patients with neurodegenerative illnesses. Fascinating.
2: Yeah, such a need too it sounds like. So I know you mentioned the underserved populations, but was there any other impetus in regards to why the St. Jude's program was created besides
3: what you've talked to me about already? I know you have some work with disparities and access to different parts of health care and things like that. I think when you're talking about patients with neurodegenerative illnesses, it's generally a prolonged illness. So from start to finish, there's so many different aspects of this illness that really require comprehensive help. And that doesn't exist in any form for this patient population. So really, as we got to interacting with these patients, understood more and more that the program was much more needed than we had anticipated.
2: So you saw much more of an outcry for that service once you actually had it in place. Absolutely,
3: because what was happening is when you're talking about something like Huntington's, Parkinson's, uh, multiple sclerosis, ALS, I think there are so many more moving parts. The medical team could include a neuropsychiatrist, a nutritionist, a physical therapist, a movement person, it's a large team. So if you look at that in comparison to perhaps diabetes, cancer, some chronic illnesses, everyone, I think, in the general population understands what it means to have those illnesses. And then it's not as complicated a team or complex wide variety of individuals involved in helping you maintain your health.
2: I see. So as you think about this, was there a specific need for social work with
3: this population? I think so. One of the aspects of taking on a sick role in your life. When you think about it, you go to the doctor and get this diagnosis, and you think about, well, what do I do next? Do I need to go to a specialist? How long will I have to live? Will I be able to work anymore? It's a variety of questions that come not only into the patient's mind, but into the family and caregiver's mind. So everything for them might change just that quickly with a diagnosis of a neurodegenerative illness. Is their home appropriately outfitted for the progression of their illness? Will they have Mm -hmm. to be in long-term care? So as you can imagine, the emotional stress of having an illness like that is not only uh, for the patient, for their family and it impacts the family in ways you couldn't imagine. And there are some of these individuals who are older in age and some who are younger and who have children, and they want to see those children grow up, and how do they provide for their children with an illness like this. So Mm -hmm. as you can imagine, the need for the therapeutic piece of our social work was great, supporting these individuals, helping them through the adjustment phase, understanding that they're grieving their old life, things like that.
2: As you know, I've done some work with the older population, and you did mention aging as being one of the populations that are impacted with this disorder, but it's across other disorders for older adults, for example, dementia, Alzheimer's, once they receive that diagnosis, it can drastically change things in much of what you're mentioning that you do need to make sure that people are equipped to move forward the best they can
3: with their caregivers. As you can imagine, Dr. Bach, just one aspect of the emotional adjustment, if the person that has the illness or their family members are in denial or lack the awareness around what they need to do, and there's that lag time of them addressing this through some kind of medical team, sometimes the symptoms can progress even more quickly than if they were to at least have some medication to address the symptoms, have some appropriate physical activity or different therapies that would help them. That's just one aspect, being in denial or that, lacking that awareness around the fact that there needs to be some sort of care plan can mm-hmm. be just one snag, an aspect of the need for social work that have that professional come in and use some therapeutic tools to help you address the underlying issue around your denial.
2: Kimberly, what does the St. Jude Project
3: provide to patients with these disorders? Generally, we provide something that's community-based, patient-centered, collaborative, therapeutic, and comprehensive. So under that, in the community-based heading of what we do, we go to the home, okay? we go in the community, we go to doctor's appointments, we go to the grocery store, we go to the pharmacy. Wherever that patient might need our support, we go there. And as a social worker, I'm a firm believer that there's nothing like having eyes on patient and family in their community, where they are. And many things don't come up until you arrive. For instance, I was going to do a home visit with a patient. Her family was there on this occasion. She got up to go to the bathroom, and then they unleashed all of these issues that they had and that they were concerned about. And I said, you know, have you ever spoken to the patient about it? No, we haven't talked to her yet. So my presence alone as a therapist gave them the opportunity to really, really open up about some of the issues and concerns that they were having that really needed to be talked about in a safe setting. Many, many other environments that were in the doctor's office, for instance. Oftentimes, if you have a patient and they have cognitive issues, even for the most able-bodied person, you go to a doctor, you don't always understand everything that they're saying, which sometimes asks for clarity and so forth. However, with cognitive issues and you go to the doctor and you have questions, but your processing isn't as fast. So the doctor isn't aware of that and they rattle off what you should do and is everything okay and that sort of thing. I've gone with patients and patients said, should I take this medication? And a doctor went into a philosophical why doctors like this medication and generally what it does and this and that. Both sat there quietly. And I interjected at the end, should she take the medication? And the doctor said, oh, absolutely, if, if it helps. medical profession improved as they are in terms of trying to communicate to patients. Many times patients leave with a discharge or summary of the visit, not understanding everything that they should do. It often impacts their ability to follow through with the plan.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just my work with the aging, much the same as what you're saying. And oftentimes, their time is so, so short with the patient as well. Yeah. So in addition to everything you're talking about, giving all these orders, and the patient doesn't always have this opportunity to ask questions, or they don't think what to ask, or they don't understand, but might be reluctant even to ask. And that's something that I found particularly with the aging population.
3: Absolutely. We're in a managed care time of our lives, and this means that doctors have a certain amount of patients they need to see. I firmly believe that they want to provide good service to patients. But when you have a certain amount of education, the way you talk and the way the patient speaks about things medically may not be the same. I've noticed that patients may need for you to break it down a little bit, help them understand the, the consequences of what's going on, I know I met with a patient and she had her appointment, the neurologist, and we sat outside the hospital on the bench while she explained to me that she had gone all the way down the road in her mind that if the doctor said a certain outcome was going to happen, she was going to have to leave her current housing. And none of this was the case, but she had really revved herself up and gotten frightened. So how much do you think she really could hear of that appointment while she's sitting there frightened? And then she was listing those key words that meant she would have to leave her housing. And so we were able to unpack that and go through and reality check and do some cognitive thinking around what was really going on, what should she really expect. And I find that these patients really need that and really acknowledge the support and how, how relieved they are when we can go to these appointments with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely.
2: What did you and your staff find was unique about working with patients with these disorders?
3: All of what I just explained makes these cases very complex. So from beginning to end, you may meet a patient who was recently diagnosed. Have they found a specialty facility where they can access the right kind of care for their particular illness? Do they have supports in place in the community, natural supports? Do they have the financial resources, insurance that will pay for most of what they need? Do they need to apply for SSDI? Do we meet them in the middle of the process where they're starting to show serious signs of their illness, This becoming apparent that they can't drive anymore or they can't maneuver their home anymore? What do they do? Are they going to go to an assisted living or are they going to a long-term care facility? Or we may meet them towards the end of their life where they're in a long-term facility and their time is short. And helping the family determine what's the best route or, you know, helping them acknowledge and accept the fact that their family member appears to be in transition of their life. We could meet a person on any part of that spectrum and then all the factors surrounding that time for them, such as the support, the financial issues, whether they want to have a a will or do they need legal help, those things require that we have consistent, often assessment of each patient that we meet and continue to work with. Under a normal social work model, you would assess once a year. Every time you see that patient, you're looking for what's changed, what the needs are, so that you can continue to meet their needs wherever they are.
2: Sounds multifaceted and it seems like it's continuing evaluation and reevaluation.
3: Absolutely, you, you hit it on the head. Were there any gaps in patient care? As I said, one aspect of it is when you have illnesses that are rarer, tend to be less medical resources and then community social services. So obviously, something that's not as common, you can't find a doctor that specializes in it, you have to travel long distances to go to that doctor, things like that. Whereas if you have something more common, there may be a doctor right down the street that treats that illness. Lack of resources also cause disparities with these patients. If you're one of those patients who don't qualify for the Medicaid uh, waiver program, Mm -hmm. which would maybe pay for a lot of the different things you may need to stay in the home and so forth. Then you're looking to pay for those out-of-pocket. Well, you're on SSDI, so you make just a little bit too much to qualify for that, right? Right. But you still need someone in the home. You still need transportation places. You still need food. Those kinds of things present huge gaps in care for a certain part of the population who don't have the right resources. Really, these programs are state by state. I work in the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area right now. And so the counties that these individuals are in outside of D.C. makes a big difference in terms of what they offer through the Office of Aging and Disability that might be in that area.
2: There's considerable variances between states and between areas within the state in regards to qualifying and mm-hmm. what the cost is that someone would need to pay. Another thing I found just in working with a waiver it's depending
3: on where you live, there can be a longer wait list. So I don't know Absolute. if you've experienced Oh, my goodness. Yes. The wait list. And the individuals to coordinate the care is just so lengthy and I think they've tried to clean this up in the last few years but it really does take a lot of paperwork and follow-up that if you're sick and sitting somewhere and don't have individuals working with you how are you going to complete those tasks locally I work with the DC office on aging and they are have been working for years To really, really make sure that the the system that they have in place is streamlined because they know that many people have been on these waiting lists for for many years, and the program can only be effective if there is some internal, external, and community follow-up to all the different parts that are required for patients to get on the program, uh, get assessed, and receive those services in the home.
2: So we've talked about some of the uniqueness of working with this population and GAPS. As you think about the population, how did these different distinctions in this population
3: lead you to explore the expanded model of care? When you're thinking about uh, patients with neurodegenerative illnesses, it really, the assessment and collaboration part of the model became really expansive. We had to collaborate with so many different people, so many different community organizations and partners, to get what each patient might need. So any given day you might be working with a hospital, you might be working with uh, a local community organization that provides transportation or caregivers. So you know, the, you, generally you're working with the medical team, benefits, home supports, community organizations, and of course the patient and the caregivers. So it all has to be patient centered based on what the patient needs. I think it becomes really really important to focus on those two issues, assessing and then coordination and collaboration from what you find the needs of the patient are. As a social worker, you want to make a few calls, get these things in place for the patient, and then kind of follow up on whether there was follow-through and how it all worked out. However, you know, when there's so many people involved, just a lack of a return call from one organization can stall a process in a way that is damaging to your client. And then sometimes there just isn't the level of responsiveness that you would like. That's where your social work skills come into place, and I find that you just have to be tenacious and make sure that these patients get what they need. All of those different parts, of course, as a team, we have to be organized. And then you know all the different people we're following up with, we have to develop the kind of relationships with them that are exchanges and that they feel like it is beneficial for them to respond to us. Yes,
2: and one thing you're mentioning as well, it's the individual in the home that's receiving these services, oftentimes
3: they have a hard time tracking who's coming in and or who's not coming in. Exactly. I think that's part of the uniqueness of this program is that it focuses on caregivers as well. Call called to you how it was for me to go to a home where I had previously met with They identify a patient. But a whole new world of information was provided to me by her family. She lacks a lot of the awareness because she has medications and things like that, that, and she feels like everything is okay. But unfortunately, you know, the family was able to say, these are some additional issues that are going on. So it's hard sometimes for a patient to see all the problem areas first and foremost, but also have all the energy and follow-through that they need to sign all the paperwork, make sure it gets mailed, make sure it's back to the right person, call to make sure things have been followed through. I don't think you can expect a patient who has a serious illness, their symptoms are progressing, to really manage all that. I think it would be difficult for anyone.
2: So how did research on the evidence on patient navigation and care inform the way that you thought about providing comprehensive social work
3: to this population? We launched December of 2015. So. Prior to our launch, it was my mandate to sit down and figure out how to provide services for patients. We started researching and trying to figure out what model might look best. St. Jude's sits under the Catholic Charities Archdiocese of D.C. So Catholic Charities D.C. has a long history of providing wraparound services and different types of services. So, of course, we wanted to incorporate what we already knew. But as I started to research, I came across patient navigation, which was a natural fit. But patient navigation, which was created by Harold Freeman in the 80s to address disparities in cancer patients of color, primarily African American and Latina patients, in order to help them get greater access to care and then also manage their care better. So patient navigation in that sense was not going to be enough to really manage what we were doing with neurodegenerative illnesses. What we decided was that we needed patient navigation, what looked like patient navigation, and wraparound services, which came out of Alaska in the 80s to deal with youth who were struggling with challenging behaviors. They had to work in wraparound services with the family to get these children into care that would help them eventually go back into the community. So we put these two evidence-based models together and call it therapeutic patient navigation. So evidence-based practice had everything to do with how we set up model of care. Two very successful programs that dealt with some kind of semblance of our population, but not the population, because what we found is there was nothing in terms of a social work model that looked like what we needed to provide. I see, I see.
2: Parts of this actually laid the foundation for the model moving forward.
3: It gave us the framework and of course we had to adjust because what we were doing was now out in the community but in different public institutions working collaboratively so we were bringing so many different pieces together. No one model represented it and we really had to Mm -hmm. create something and it, it just became more and more obvious. What are your program goals? Well first and foremost just to frame it, most outcomes with regard to health programs or patient programs look to improve the patient's health. With progressive illnesses like Huntington's and Parkinson's and such, there's no way to do that. These are illnesses. They're going to come along and go in the direction of probably more symptomatic and then end of life. So we knew that that couldn't be the outcomes for us or the goals for us. The foundation of our relationship with the clients is a therapeutic relationship. So we base our most important goal on therapeutic alliance. We want to make sure that the patient feels supported and that they feel heard and that they feel like they have someone to walk through their health journey with. And how do you go about measuring this? We use surveys. We check in with the client on a regular basis. Is everything okay? Even after each session, sometimes I'll speak with the client and say, did our session today make sense? Was it helpful? And then quarterly, we give surveys to make sure that the clients feel comfortable, that they feel supportive, and that, you know, we're doing a good therapeutic job with that client. You know, and that speaks to our another goal that we have. This secondary goal is to provide each patient with supportive interventions pertaining to their illness care. We don't just go have therapy with them, obviously. We do case management triaging and things like that. So like you said, with their providers and such, we make sure that we've implemented some interventions that help them maintain their care or plan their care or different aspects of their illness care. So that's another essential goal that we have. And, and we generally measure that by taking a look at our database to see what kind of services we provided and making mm-hmm. sure that 80% of our patients have received some sort of intervention from us. How
2: will you follow up on the effectiveness of this program model?
3: Well, we're looking for people like yourself, Dr. Bach, and other researchers and organizations who might partner with us in the future to help us design a research tool that might measure what seems to be, to some, nebulous, the therapeutic quality of life that this person feels. I think researchers kind of want firm numbers of whether you know, the patient improved in care and such. But for these type of social work models that are patient-centered and quality of life wellness models, we're trying to do some research and partnering with some organizations that might be willing to help us. You know, some of the other outcomes we're looking at are whether these patients have easy access to accurate and understandable information about their illness and receive emotional and practical support through their choices and the team involvement. Because I think I've had a situation recently in which I visited a matriarch of the family who has several daughters with Huntington's disease, and she just knows nothing about Huntington's. That's a great source of anxiety for her because she feels that she can't care for her daughters if she doesn't know anything about the illness. And so I think we feel like if we meet someone with an illness, they already know what the illness is about. Um, Educating and making sure that if she doesn't have a computer or, you know, if we need to sit down and just talk with her and go over some of the, the aspects of the illness, these things are really important. Also, I feel like to the extent that we can help the patients with feeling good about symptom management, whether they've been able to access a doctor who can help them with proper medications and the right protocols to help them with their symptoms. We know they're not going to go away, but, for instance, the chorea, the movement aspect of Huntington's disease, there is medication for that. And we've met patients who hadn't accessed that yet, and we were Mm -hmm. able to help facilitate that. So these things uh, speak directly to, you know, their health and well-being and, and quality of life when, you know, they can keep these kind of things under control to the best of their extent
2: absolutely i know that i did a project a couple of years back with we talked to care partners and individuals with dementia and that was one of the primary things i heard i heard you mention education but knowing more about the disorder knowing more about patient care as the illness progresses those were a couple of our top needs that we found under this wow. that
3: and wow. when you meet the patients and families say with huntingtons because it's been a rare disease over the years they know more about Huntington's and what's coming, you know, down the pike in terms of research and goodies and you'll meet patients and families who are great advocates for themselves and it's wonderful to see that there are some patients who can gain access to that information, but they really have had to. They had really no other choice because there wasn't a lot of information out there. Now there's the, you know, Huntington's Disease Society of America and different, Mm -hmm. you know, organizations, HD centers all around the U.S. Globally there's lots of information to access. But as a rule, I think that, you know, understanding what impacts health and then, you know, being able to focus on the, the greatest needs and collaborating Uh, to maximize what you can get out of community and resources. I think, you know, first and foremost, it starts with being educated.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I I found just in some of my own work, too, is when we talk about education, there's a plethora of information on the internet, but we we always can't assume that people have access to a
3: computer, nor that they have the time to navigate and
2: find the information. And I might add,
3: absolutely, you're correct in that, you know, our aging population is less tech-savvy in some instances. It is reticent about getting on the computer and the Internet. Mm -hmm. You know, that's frightening to them. And you can also add a lot of these patients who have cognitive issues. One of my patients, for months I would come to her house and help her reset or find her password. We would write it down. We finally figured out a system to write down her password but she would lock herself out of that computer regularly. It was her processing speed and her cognitive ability did not allow her to really use the computer in that way. So when we're dealing with practitioners that she interacts with, I have them email me important forms, and then I print them out, and when I see her weekly, I I give her the forms. So as you can imagine, asking a person like that to try to just go on the Internet and look up HD, you'll see a lot of information. I took another patient the actual piece of paper on her Parkinson's. She had a lot of different symptoms that pointed to her Parkinson's, but she would say, due to my old age, I'm going through these issues. And so we had some denial in the beginning. And when I gave her the papers on Parkinson's, she promptly the next session threw it back at me and said, I don't know what that means. And so obviously a part of it was still her denial, but I mm-hmm. had to walk through that paperwork with her and, say, and explain to her, you said you had this symptom last week, and you see it's on the list of symptoms for Parkinson's. You said you had the next symptom. And so we went over it slowly, and it took her maybe seven months, but she finally would acknowledge her Parkinson's and do exactly what the medical team reminded her to do. And we even so on walk during our sessions because movement is one of the primary tools that help Parkinson's. So, during our walk, we walk through the neighborhood, talk over everything, and then we end at a bench somewhere. And then she has paperwork to give me or things she wants to show me. But that's a part of our social work practice is to walk during our session to model what behavior she needs to continue on through the rest of the week. So, you have to bring information to the clients in the way that they understand and can utilize because, you know, it doesn't and a great idea is never a great idea unless someone can really use it.
2: How have your patients responded to the social work model?
3: I think they have welcomed it with open arms. Many of them did not want to focus on uh, having a social worker help them, but they were able to utilize the care. They found that it was just so relieving to have someone to talk to, first of all, someone who understood the illness and the, the impact that it could have on them and their family. Many times they actually just need us. They need us to help them with issues and challenges that they may be having. So, you know, they're very happy and relieved to have the help to really unpack what's going on, how should they go about planning, things like that, and to also access that care and the services in the community. Many times they just don't know where to start, and, you know, we can walk through that with them. And so far we've had really good results on the surveys. You know, always adjusting to when certain things don't work as well, making sure that we follow the direction of the patients and what they need. So one of the closing questions I want to ask, mm-hmm. anything
2: else that's next for you with this
3: program? Well, I think I had a steering committee meeting probably this week. And, you know, we're really going to try to uh, publish. I have an article in the new social online social work magazine about patient-centered care. But we really want to take this model and put it out there to peer review so that we can get that critique back and make it into a model that others may be able to utilize if they're serving this population.
2: It's a great idea.
3: It's about me sitting down and making sure that I have the time and, you know, collaborate with some others at the agency to to make sure this happens. And then, of course, the further branding of the program so that whoever needs to utilize it can do so. And, you know, it is a grant-funded Program uh, through the Griffin Foundation. The funder wants us to think outside the box, to innovate, and so that's given us great freedom to kind of explore what is the scope of our social work practice, what is evidence-based, and how to bring those two together to push it, push the line a little bit further. You know, we want to make sure that this program has some sustainability financially through, you know, gaining more grants and finding ways to collaborate with other partners who can contribute as well. I
2: definitely encourage you to get it out there as far as publishing, because it is a little bit different model. You mentioned you looked at
3: some of the evidence yes. and developed your own model of care, so I think it's it's really critical. I think it's coming. We have been operating just over a year, but you know it's been exciting and really refreshing because I feel like this is what I went to social work school to do, to work with patients in a way that's meaningful. It's not always going to be meaningful in making them better, and they're going to live forever. But it is meaningful when you see their look of relief on individuals' faces when you arrive, and they can talk to you about things that are really, really concerning them, and and you have some some answers for them, or you help them work it out. It's really been an exciting program for me to to launch, and as the clinical manager of this program, you know, really sink my teeth into so many different aspects of, you know, how it runs, the outreach, the branding, and direct service. You rarely get the opportunity to uh, do all those things in, in one position. Absolutely. It makes for busy days, but I, I, I <laughs> it. Love
2: does, it. but it sounds very rewarding.
3: Absolutely. In closing, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think, you know, I've enjoyed talking to you and I really appreciate the work you've yeah. done. I'm. I have a real passion for the aging population.
2: Well, Kimberly, it was such a pleasure to talk with you. I mean, you've done some fantastic work with the program, and I congratulate you on the work that you've done.
3: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Kimberly Washington describe neurogenerative disorders on in social work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there... Check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll
2: find it under the Community Resources menu.